You're listening to a podcast from the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions. We've created this series of short audio pieces to introduce listeners to what we do. As historians of emotions, we look to the past to understand our feelings in the present. What can a saucy drag queen being arrested in 1932 teach us about the history of emotions? Listen to Tiffany Watt-Smith explain in this episode about schadenfreude. Lady Austen's Retort Men dressed as women, screamed the morning advertiser headline. In early December 1932, police raided a house in Holland Park Avenue to discover a drag ball in full swing. Albert A was powdered, rouged and bewigged. Joseph C had on a low-cut evening dress and carried a handbag. As the police swarmed and made arrests and lipsticks were hastily dropped, the party's host, known to his friends as Lady Austin, turned to Inspector Francis. He pointed to another party goer and asked if that man had in fact been an undercover police officer. The inspector admitted he had. Fancy that, Lady Austin said, perfectly in control, his voice poised dangerously between irony and sincerity. He is too nice. I could love him and rub his jimmy for hours. <laughs> I can't help smiling as I imagine what happened next. Was the inspector flustered? Did embarrassment flicker across his face? And what of the onlookers, Lady Austin's so-called camp boys? the 60 or so others who were about to spend the night in Ladbroke Grove Police Station. Did they hold their breath, stifle their sniggers? Did they, in the midst of all of this oppression, see the inspector humiliated and experience a tiny moment of triumph? There is so much to say about this incident, about the thriving homosexual demimonde in 1930s London, about its diversities and dangers, about the undercover police who attended balls, sometimes themselves in drag, about the public appetite for the scandal and spectacle of queer men and women. But the image I can't help returning to is Lady Austin delivering her audacious retort and her camp boys around her experiencing, at the police inspector's expense, a moment of schadenfreude, that malicious glee in the humiliations of others. It might not seem so surprising now, from RuPaul's Drag Race to Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, acid-tongued drag queens throwing shade and delivering catty put-downs are almost a cliché. But around a hundred years ago, the professional sexologists who studied sexual inverts, or earnings as they were then known, peddled a very different emotional stereotype. Cross-dressing gay men were assumed to be female souls imprisoned in male bodies, sensitive, vain, but compassionate and gentle. As the German psychiatrist Ivan Bloch opined in his 1909 The Sexual Life of Our Time, the imaginative, the dreamy, is much more predominant in the homosexual than a crude sense of reality. From Kraft Ebbing to Taylor Croft, no one mentioned the sort of skilful, spiteful camp put-down that Lady Austen delivered that night. How had the sexologists managed to overlook this vital, emotional style? 
Homosexual cultures in London in the 1920s and 30s were more vibrant and visible than is usually imagined. But this was still a life replete with dangers where a jokey catcall might turn violent. The historian Matt Holbrook has uncovered how camp wit was part of an arsenal of self-defence. Alex Purdy, for example, was a Deptford market trader born in 1913 who had a flamboyant persona and wore makeup and had a string of boyfriends. He recalled, In a pub, you get the and all this lark. You've got to be aggressive, give them a mouthful. With its irony and innuendo, camp aggression was unnerving, writes Holbrook, simply because it was so unintelligible. In fact, camp put-downs weren't just the preserve of street corners around London's Piccadilly Circus. One other place people might have learnt to enjoy the spectacle of a man in a dress making his hecklers look foolish was in that mainstay of solid family entertainment, the theatre. From circuses to music halls, from pantomimes to pubs, since the middle of the 19th century, female impersonators had been a cornerstone of Victorian entertainment. There were quick-change artists who posed as heroines past from Boudicca to Elizabeth I. There were pretty boys in dresses who sang sweetly of heartbreak and glamorous enigmas such as the internationally acclaimed Lind, whose name appeared on billboards sandwiched between two question marks. But most remembered today is that Victorian innovation, the knockabout comic Pantomime Dame. If early sexologists linked femininity to sensitivity, the female emotional life portrayed by the dames was the opposite. Misogynistic, often racist, they portrayed postmenopausal women in shawls and wigs as sex-starved and mean and gossipy. Emotions have often been gendered through history. Courage, anger and jealous rages have been historically associated with men. By contrast, envy and spite and those underhand pleasures of gossip and schadenfreude have traditionally been coded female. Uh, for she, wrote the philosopher Max Scheler in 1913, is the weaker and therefore the more vindictive sex. The dame-type female impersonators reinforced these emotional stereotypes, hissing at hecklers and gloating over their rivals' downfalls and delighting in malicious gossip. Dan Lino's Irish old maid, a triple whammy, female, old and Irish, was particularly adored. Oh, you know, Mrs Kelly, you know, Mrs Kelly, went her catchphrase, before going on to enumerate poor Mrs Kelly's many, many shortcomings. The dames must have helped cultivate a recognisable style, the gabby cross-dresser whose appeal lay precisely in their sly, catty put-downs. But by the 1930s, a new generation of cross-dressers performing in fashionable nightclubs and reviews linked themselves more explicitly to homosexual culture. Openly gay performers such as Douglas Bing delighted mainly straight middle-class audiences with their camp acidic retorts and sexual innuendo, while review skits such as Noel Coward's notorious Oranges and Lemons, in which two women played by men must undress for bed, saw the previous generation's misogyny morph into ludicrous self-parody. In their performances, a new generation of drag queens held up their own supposed female streak for mockery, uh, twisting it to show not just the sensitivity, but also the sneakiness and the malice and the rivalry a dizzying subversion of the gender expectations sexologists had taken for granted. 
George Orwell is not known for his support of cross-dressing men, but a quote from him here is apt. Each joke, he wrote, is a tiny revolution. When Lady Austen delivered her camp witty retort to Inspector Francis that night in Holland Park Avenue, it was certainly a moment of defiance. But it was also a performance worthy of a West End review, an insight not just into a hidden subculture's modes of engagement, but into the way mainstream and queer cultures had co-opted and echoed one another's emotional styles to undermine, through mockery and schadenfreude, the prejudices of their age. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It's part of the Living with Feeling project funded by the Wellcome Trust. We hope it helped you feel better. To find out more about our work, please visit emotionslab.org.